Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, uh, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Doru Paul. He's an associate professor of clinical medicine, Weill Cornell Medical College. He's an oncologist, so he deals with cancer and uh, also a hematologist. So, Doru, thanks for coming. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, if you would, tell me a little bit about your background and how long you've been in practice. Yes, so uh, first of all, I'm Romanian, and I was born on the Black Sea side in Constanza, which is an old Greek colony. I did my high school in uh, in Bucharest, and uh, I was uh, really in love with mathematics. And um, the reason I uh, I really uh, went into medicine is that at 17, I discovered biology, and I realized that the biological world is a lot more complex and a lot richer than the mathematical world. And basically, I consider the problems invaded by the human mind easier to solve and at another level of complexity than the problems invented by nature. So um, I entered medical school in uh, Bucharest at Carol Davila University. And in my first year, I was trying to identify which are the key problems in medicine. And at that time, I identified two, cancer and psychiatric disorders. But, you know, mental disorders, they seem to me a bit esoterical. Uh, do not forget I was living in communist Romania, where uh, in a certain sense, everybody was more or less mentally deranged. So oh, uh, interesting. Connotations, you know. Yeah, I've been to uh, Romania. I, I visited Ceausescu's house and I saw that the, um, you know, in the railways, they made some of the platforms so narrow you couldn't even stand on them. And they did all kinds of crazy stuff. So I understand what you mean about mental disorders. So, so this is why you know, I said, okay, uh, th- there is, you know, cancer, which is a, a really unsolved problem. And since then, basically for 33 years, I've been pursuing relentlessly this cancer riddle. So uh, I did my first four years of medical school in Bucharest. Subsequently, I got a Tempus grant and I left Romania in 91. 30 years ago, I left Romania. And I continued my medical school in France, first in Caen on the Norman coast, and then in Paris at the University of Paris 11 or Crenan Bicetre. And I got my uh, diploma of uh, medical school in Gustave Roussy in Villejuif working on the HTLV-1 virus. And uh, subsequently, I did uh, several diplomas in Paris, chronobiology, clinical oncology, and then a master's degree in the biology of aging. So I left Paris for New York in 96, where I did my residency in internal medicine, then my fellowship in Himonk. So since 2002, I've been working as an attending in hematology oncology in different settings. City Hospital uh, for 10 years, when I've seen really very incredible very interesting cases, you know, with cancer. And then I jumped from the poorest population in New York to the richest population in New York. And I worked for uh, six years in the Long Island and Northwell Health, which is basically a sophisticated large private practice. And finally, three years ago, I joined the Wild Cornell, where I've been uh, seeing patients with head and neck cancer and developing a head and neck practice. So summing it up, first of all, I'm a clinician and I take care of patients with cancer. And until now, I treated probably more than 10,000 patients with various types of cancer. Second, I've been doing clinical and translational clinical trials in oncology, and uh, I've done more than 30 studies probably, you know, in oncology. And then third, and not the least, there is my work in theoretical biology that uh, I've been also developing um, 
uh, in parallel with all that. My goal in oncology is to, to really better understand what is cancer and how to find more effective and less toxic ways to treat it. So there are many important unanswered questions in the field of oncology. And uh, I think it's very important to keep asking the right questions and trying to solve them. In the last 20 years, the field of oncology has changed tremendously. I mean, practically every single regimen that was used 20 years ago when I finished my um, fellowship has changed. 20 years ago, there were few effective treatments. And um, now we have agents, we have uh, next generation sequencing, immunotherapy. What cancers do you focus on and why? Right now, right now, I'm focusing on head and neck cancers. In the past, in the last 10 years, I've been doing both lung cancer and head and neck cancer. So no one gets, I guess, cancer of the head, but they'll get brain cancer, they'll get bird cancer, they'll get tongue cancer, etc. But Within yes. head and neck, how many different cancers are there and which ones do you focus on? Yes, yes, yes. I think it's a very important question. So in oncology, when we're talking about head and neck, we do not talk about brain. So we're talking really about throat cancer, nasopharynx cancers. So the cancers of the really throat and the nasopharynx, which are below the brain. And of course, thyroid, okay. thyroid cancer, which are another type of cancer. I've had papillary thyroid cancer, so. You know, at least I've had one of them, I guess, that you deal with. But um, so, right. so that's that's one of the cancers I'm dealing with. So I'm I'm a specialist, you know, in uh, in head and neck, and the papillary thyroid cancer is one of, of course, one of the common cancers uh, in thyroid. So that's you know, I'm dealing with that. So what um, what are some of the new treatments that you're using now in the clinic, and what do they do, and how do they work? Recently, for head and neck cancer, there's been a big success with immunotherapy. The Keynote 48 study introduced immunotherapy in the armamentarium of cancer treatment. Before 2008, until uh, practically last year, the standard was a combination of uh, cetuximab and chemotherapy. And then the Keynote 14 study compared pembrolizumab plus or minus chemotherapy with this standard regimen and proved it was better in terms of uh, overall survival. So now for advanced uh, disease or metastatic disease for squamous cell, head and neck, the treatment is really either immunotherapy alone for a certain expression on the surface of uh, the cancer cells, uh, a PDL one more than a one, or a combination of chemotherapy plus the pembrolizumab for a PDL one less than one. So I think this is a, really a big uh, success because um, until now, on average, the, the survival was um, approximately uh, 10 months. And uh, with this, we have a survival which is superior to a year with uh, immunotherapy plus or minus uh, chemotherapy. So that's, that's I, I would say this is you know the most significant recent advance. Right now, I'm also uh, doing a study here that uh, is something very interesting in which I'm combining an oncolytic virus that is injected locally into the tumor with two other modalities to stimulate the immune system with uh, stereotactic body uh, radiotherapy and with the pembrolizumab. So the idea is to try to stimulate the immune system by different ways, both by uh, local uh, stimulation with this uh, oncolytic virus that is specifically targeting uh, the cells that uh, have a hyperexpression of telomerase and with uh, SBRT and with the pembro. So uh, I'm trying to put together really three modalities in order to stimulate the immune system so the cancer is cured and doesn't come back. 
Um, when you say MAB uh, for some of the um, medications, MAB is mon monoclonal antibodies, right? Uh, yeah. So um, the, the one that's been used a lot in uh, squamous uh, head and neck has been um, Erbitax, uh, Cetuximab. So this is an EGFR. Well, well be before we get into a particular, can you describe, like in your own words, how monoclonal antibodies work? How are they yes, created? Course, what do they do? Of course. So... Since 1998, with the first discovery, you know, of the usefulness of uh, an approval of uh, uh, monoclonal antibody, which was uh, Herceptin, we have now a plethora of uh, monoclonal antibodies. So what it is, is that the cancer cells express on their surface in excess certain proteins that are important for the oncologic process. And this may be epidermal growth factor uh, receptors like uh, HER, HER2, and uh, Herceptin, it's an antibody against uh, HER. Or in terms of uh, hematological malignancies, certain um, cluster differentiation molecules like CD20 and rituximab, which is approved for many lymphomas, it's an antibody against CD20. In head and neck, the one that is used, it's uh, cetuximab or Erbitax, which is an antibody against um, epidermal growth factor receptor 1, EGFR. Okay. So what are, so, what are some of these new uh, medications supposed to do? What are, how are they supposed to help? So, you know, in oncology, immunotherapy, which are the checkpoint inhibitors, are really the newcomers. Well, they're not so new because they've been around for eight years now with epilimumab being the first one. So what they do is that they remove the break that the cancer cells are putting onto the uh, immune cells. So when cancer cells are sensing the presence of immune cells, they overexpress on their surface this um, uh, molecule called PDL1, which is inhibiting the active immune system of the T cells. So what the checkpoint inhibitors are doing are really blocking the interaction between this PDL1 molecule that is expressed on the surface of the cancer cells and the PD1 molecule that is expressed on the surface of the T cells. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So by blocking this interaction, the T cells are able to attack the cancer cells and uh, destroy them. How does it modulate the immune system's interaction with the cancer, though? Does it, does it prevent the cancer from expressing certain proteins on its cell membrane, and therefore the immune system will continue to recognize it? Or like, what is the specific mechanism that you know of? So again, what it does is that it is blocking the activity of the T cells. It is inducing inside the T-cell an apoptotic signal, like a suicide signal. So mm. when cancer cell, they sense the presence in the environment of these uh, T-cells. They are overexpressing this PDL1 molecule that basically makes the T-cells commit suicide, makes them uh, anergic, makes them not active. And by using these uh, monoclonal antibodies to block this interaction, then the T-cells remain active and they can attack 
the cancer cells. Why would the, the T cells normally uh, receive a signal to, you know, to die, to go through apoptosis? When, when does that happen and why? Well, there is always a balance in the tissue between the um, basically different uh, components of the immune system. So if you have an overexpression of certain um, cells of the immune system, then you have autoimmune diseases. And uh, of course, if you have uh, the balance is inclined in the opposite way, you can have cancer. So really the apparition of cancer is a change in this balance between um, uh, different uh, T cells. So there are these macrophages, also the M2 macrophages that are uh, supporting the development of cancer. Then you have the Tregs that you may have heard about, the T regulatory cells that are also supporting uh, the development uh, of cancer. So there is a certain um, recipe of um, immune cells in the uh, environment, in the tissue, that is pro-cancer or anti-cancer. And uh, these checkpoint uh, molecules are really just uh, helping uh, put a balance towards more anti-cancer immune environment. So in clinic, um, how many monoclonal antibody drugs are there? And, you know, what have you observed clinically? Like, how well do they work? You know, at what point are they brought in uh, in someone's treatment? I already told you about the Herbitax that's uh, been approved for a long time, more than 10 years now. And then um, pembrolizumab, which is Keytruda, that it's a PD-1 inhibitor. Then nivolumab, which um, is Obdivo, which is another PD-1 inhibitor. There is also um, a particular uh, molecule called semiplimab that it's um, used for uh, squamous cell of the skin. That's been uh, recently approved for squamous cell cancer of the skin. Uh, and then we have um, atezolizumab, which is a PD-L1 inhibitor. Uh, or tecentric. We have also durvalumab, which is another PD-1 inhibitor. So in the clinic, um, in the head and neck area, we've been using uh, these five checkpoint inhibitors and also the Herbitax, the EGFR inhibitor. Um, Are these used after chemotherapy at the same time, before? You know, when are they best used? Herbitax, it is used either in combination with chemotherapy, either by itself. It can be used to make the radiation more effective by giving it um, together with radiation, just with radiation, not with chemotherapy. Or in more advanced uh, disease, it can be used in combination with uh, with chemotherapy. Pembrolizumab, I told you, can be used either alone or in combination with chemotherapy. In failures, it can be also uh, used by itself in second line. Both um, Obdivo and Keytruda, both Pembrolizumab. Um, if you like this podcast, Please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. But does the uh, does the standard of care force you to do radiation, resection, and chemo first, or have people tried uh, these no, no. You know, so, monoclonal antibodies? Uh, so you see, yeah, you see, in in, um, in a head and neck cancer, we have several options. So, for example, let's say there's a base of the of the tongue uh, lesion. At that time, you know, depending on the extent, if it's crossing the midline, etc., uh, the treatment will be either surgery or chemotherapy and radiation. So chemotherapy and radiation is used in several scenarios. It can be used instead of surgery, or if there are certain adverse features, like for example, uh, lymph node with extranodal extension or uh, the margins of surgery, they can be used uh, after after surgery. So these are different scenarios to use uh, chemotherapy and, uh, and radiation.
Yeah, I just didn't know. Um, again, the engine play, I didn't know if the standard of care required you to do certain things first, or it sounds like it's more flexible, which is very good. You know? Yeah. So, um, you know, we can, we can, we can talk now, but now we'll be discussing about the standard of care, but we can also discuss uh, a little about uh, the research because, uh, you know, in, in, in the last, uh, I would say 20 years, I think I had two major ideas and I've been working okay. both of them. So the first one, it's um, a striking idea. You may have heard about PET scans, right? So a PET scan, it's a study that is using yeah. radioactive glucose to visualize cancer, which is called FDG, right? So it's fluorodeoxyglucose. And you've been also hearing a lot about, you know, not using sugar because uh, cancer can use uh, sugar uh, in order to uh, grow. So right, right. sugar, stuff like that, right? So, um, and of course, you may have heard also about Otto Warburg with the idea that um, cancer cells are using this type of uh, aerobic glycolysis. So in my fellowship, in my second year, I had this um, idea. We've been using um, radioactive iodine to target um, thyroid cancer. And uh, why not use FDG to target all cancers that are basically uh, very avid for glucose? And of course... Everybody will say, oh, you know, this is very dangerous because uh, glucose is not only taken by the cancer cells, but it's also taken by uh, the brain, by the heart, by the kidneys. In fact, if you're going to do some mathematics, these organs, the brain, the heart, the kidneys, they're really resistant radiation because they contain uh, terminal uh, differentiated cells. So if you do the, you know, the, the calculations on paper, in fact, you can give huge doses of uh, FDG without toxicity. So this prompted us to, uh, to do this study in which you're using uh, FDG for therapeutic purposes. And, you know, just to make a 20-year-long uh, story very short, we were able to get funded and uh, we treated uh, the first four patients. And uh, here is the remarkable thing that uh, we observed. We were planning really to escalate to high levels. But in the first four patients that we treated, we observed responses with very low doses. So what we are gathering is that low doses of FDG may probably stimulate the immune system. So what, are, what, what we've been thinking in the future is to maybe combine these checkpoint inhibitors I've been describing with low doses of FDG. So oh, wait, okay, quick question here. So you would, so the FDG, what, how is it therapeutic? Is it? You mean it just upregulates okay. so, or gets the cancer dividing yeah, yeah. so, 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 like crazy? Yeah. No, no. So let me explain this. It's, that's important. When anybody is doing a PET scan, you see these uh, hypermetabolic areas lightening up because uh, many cancers are very avid for glucose. What, what you use for visualization are the photons that get actually in opposite directions at 180 degrees. And uh, the positrons that, uh, you know, are used for treatment purposes, they're really at these low doses, like 10, 15 millicuries, there are no significance. When we are giving higher doses, by higher doses, I mean, we started 10 times uh, the uh, diagnostic dose of uh, 50 millicuries. The first patient, you know, received 150 millicuries, which is 10 times the dose. When you're giving higher doses... The therapeutic effect is called by the positrons that, uh, you know, are the opposite of electrons, like positive charges. So the same way that, you know, electrons uh, are used uh, in treatment, for example, for skin cancers, we were using positrons to really uh, destroy the cancer cells. And it was a very interesting effect because these positrons, 
um, are limited to something like 200 cells diameter. So they will be like a smart bomb that is really killing the cancer cells around. And um, we have been seeing responses in several types of tumor. And uh, uh, we had a really a very interesting response in a, in a patient with lymphoma, also in a patient with head and neck. So um, the benefit of this type of approach is that uh, it's completely and absolutely lacking any kind of uh, side effects. So we're able to, to achieve 400 millicuries with zero toxicity, you know, so that's uh, that's very promising. Huh. Interesting. So, uh, so the, the glucose, what shows you the target sites, but again, when the glucose is being utilized by tumor cells, what does it do to the tumor cells besides, you know, allow them to show up on a PET scan? Is there anything else it does to them that makes them more susceptible to the radiation, to the positrons? So what we are using is some type of Achilles uh, heel of the tumors because they are avid to take more uh, glucose and uh, they would take this uh, fluorodeoxyglucose, but the fluorodeoxyglucose is not utilized for metabolism. So it's really trapped in the cell. It's not able to go and uh, be used by the metabolism of the cancer cells. So we're really using this trick that the cancer cells, they want to eat a lot of glucose, and we give them like a poison glucose, if you... Okay, I didn't not realize that. This so, type so, of so the deoxyglucose is not metabolized. So that's the trick. It is really stopping there at the first, uh, you know, enzymatic uh, reaction. And uh, this is a, a kind of a metabolic trapping. They're trapped inside the cancer cells and then, you know, they're delivering their uh, charge of uh, radiation and basically uh, killing them in a, you know, in a really uh, surgical manner and uh, precise manner. And also the, the half-life, it's only uh, 110 minutes. So you can basically give the treatment in the morning and then the patient can uh, go home in the evening. There is no more radiation like you have in uh, iodine 131 where they're radioactive for three days, you know. So it, it's an yeah. issue. Because, yeah, this, this, is, this is the idea of, you know, of, of really trying to target some uh, cancer vulnerabilities, you know. So that's, no, that's great. Yeah, I didn't realize that the, the glucose itself was... So I guess it's like eating wallpaper paste you can't digest it. Exactly. And it actually, I guess it's poison. That's it. So it just that's sits exactly. in you, and you can't do anything with it, right? Right. So that's it. that's exactly the idea. Uh, you know, I mean, it really takes a long time to develop something like this, and you know, many collaborators. You need physicists. You need the radiation. What about a compound that could you modify the FTG so that the cells would take it up, but the FTG itself would be particularly amenable to a certain yeah, kind of, the, that would break is, and cause toxic byproducts? Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's a very smart, uh, actually, um, uh, question. So deoxyglucose by itself, if you give it, you need to give higher doses. Because if you think about when you're giving the FDG, it's not the deoxyglucose that is killing the cancer cells. It's the radioactive part. So you don't need to give so much high doses of uh, that deoxyglucose part. So if you're trying to give the deoxyglucose part without the radioactive part, which would be, as you say, a way to, to really target the, the cancer cells, unfortunately it has side effects. So below arriving, uh, before arriving to the uh, therapeutic effect, the deoxyglucose itself has uh, side effects, uh, neurological side effects, uh, cardiac side effects. So it cannot be escalated higher. But you're totally right. It's a very smart question. In theory, could use the DG itself without the radioactive part. Absolutely correct. But in reality, you can't because you need too high doses of that. So, any any other protocols that are interesting to you or up and coming? Yeah. So, so this was the first idea. 
The second idea is this idea of the macroscopic level of cancer. So you have, you know, the cellular levels where you discuss about mutations and all these uh, targeted agents, and you're discussing about the addiction to certain pathways. And then you have the tissue level where you have uh, some type of uh, angiogenic inhibitors inhibiting the growth of the vessels. And then um, uh, you have, of course, the immunotherapy that is also active at the tissue level. So the idea you know, that I've been developing over the last uh, six years is to zoom out. So you have the cell level, you have the tissular level, and then you have the organism. So what do I mean by the organism? The main problem that's unsolved in solid tumors in oncology is metastasis. 90% of the patients, they really die because of metastasis. And I was trying really to understand what's going on and how do these uh, uh, metastases appear and what's, what's happening there. So there is a communication between the primary tumor the metastatic distal site, and the bone marrow. They're like a triangulation. So basically, there are these signals that are uh, sent you know, by the exosomes to different um, distal sites uh, that are inducing premetastatic niche formation. And then you have also the communication between the primary tumor and the bone marrow that is sending signal to the uh, bone marrow in order to really send their this uh, bone marrow-derived cells to build up the uh, metastatic niche. So I realized that uh, this is really uh, an area that's not been investigated. And um, I think this is really the future in which you're moving from the microscopic level, the uh, cancer cell or the tissue to the macroscopic level. And you understand how cancer really functions like an organ that communicates with the, the normal organs in the organism and is establishing these new networks of uh, communication, these uh, new pathologic networks. So as we developed targeted um, agents that are targeting certain key molecules at the level of the cell, we can develop also targeted, approach, targeted approaches at the macroscopic uh, uh, level, at these uh, cancer-induced pathologic networks that function at the level of the organism. So uh, I think this is an extremely interesting uh, uh, really topic, and uh, it really deserves uh, a lot of attention. So that's, uh, yeah, this, I would say that this, uh, lately, this what uh, preoccupies me and um, investigating this uh, organism-level networks. It's uh, my recent passion. Well, you sound more like a researcher slash clin- clinician, or are you more purely a clinician? Like, how do you uh, access this research and have a hand in it? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% a, a researcher clinician. Uh, I have a PhD, in fact, uh, in oncology. I did my uh, PhD okay. in... Um, Basically, precision oncology. This was my topic, and I did this in um, in lung cancer. Years, I've, I've been director for clinical research. So, uh, totally, I am okay. a researcher oncologist. Yes. Do you think any of this FTG work and the monoclonal antibodies? I mean, do they apply to other cancers, or are you not even looking because you're there's so much to do with the head and neck cancers? Or do you, do you interface with other groups that as, you know, as, focus as, on other cancers? Yes. So, the study with the FTG was a pilot study. We had one patient with head and neck, one patient with lymphoma, one patient with small cell carcinoma of the lung, and one patient with ovarian cancer. The FDG idea applies practically to a lot of uh, both hematological malignancies and to multiple solid tumors. 
There are certain cancers that um, are not really hypermetabolic, like, for example, prostate is not a very hypermetabolic cancer. And there are also some cancers that are relatively resistant to uh, radiation, like, for example, melanomas. But uh, the idea I described with the FDG applies to, I would say, something like uh, 70%, 80% of all cancers. It's a really, it's like chemotherapy. It applies to many, many different types of cancers. Okay. So what do you think is going to be um, some of the breakthroughs that may be coming? I know that a lot of this is just incremental, but do you have a sense that in the next year or so, there's going to be any big change or it's going to take much longer than that? What's your thought? Well, I mean, if you look again in the last eight years, you have immunotherapy, the first line of immunotherapy products. And then now the second line is coming in which you combine different immunotherapy agents so what will happen in, uh, in the next year or so, you're going to see combinations of uh, immunotherapy agents. There will be many, many studies that are combining different uh, ways to stimulate the immune system. So the immediate, in the immediate uh, future, I think uh, immunotherapy is going to, to be on the front lines. Uh, the treatments I've been describing you are treatments that I would say they're not in the immediate future. I would say maybe in three, five years, we're going to see things like that. Uh, there is already a treatment, a very interesting um, use of uh, radiation that uh, has been approved for neuroendocrine tumors. It's called dotatate. The same principle, you are uh, linking to an antibody, to some uh, peptides, you're linking uh, a radioactive compound, it's lutetium-177, and it's targeting specifically the neuroendocrine tumors. So this is approved, the dotatate. And uh, it has been uh, really achieving some very interesting uh, results. Uh, I've been treating also myself patients with this approach. And uh, it's a similar approach to the FDG idea. And uh, it's really very effective. Well, very good. We'll have to talk about that again in the future. Yeah, I appreciate you coming, Dora. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? And uh, where do you, do you practice? Well, I'm practicing at uh, Wild uh, uh, Cornell uh, College in um, Manhattan, New York. And... Uh, if you just uh, Google my name, Doru Paul, uh, you can uh, see the website of Cornell. And there, there are some of the publications that I described. The FDG publication is there. And uh, if, you, if you Google the systemic hallmarks of uh, cancer, and this is where I describe all these uh, networks that exist at the, the level of the organism, uh, you're going to find also the, the paper that I published last year on the systemic uh, hallmarks. Okay. Well, very good. Doru, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.